a listener production. Hello and welcome to Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which ordinarily Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to share at a dinner party. And of course, Rosie is still taking a little break, which means each week we've got an extra special guest host joining us on the show. And this week it's the fabulous Jan Fran. Jan, welcome to Just the Gist. Jacob, thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited because I love swindlers. So I'm really, I'm hoping you've got a big swindler story for me today. Oh, you know, a sense actually. Yeah, there is a little bit of a chapter in there about um, a swindler type scheme that happens. So hopefully um, this is going to scratch that itch for you. Uh, We are so grateful to have you on board this week Um, and I'm sure the vast majority of Gistners are already very familiar with your work but for the uninitiated, could you maybe just give us uh, the gist of who you are and what you do? Yes. Um, So I'm a um, journalist slash TV presenter, Mm -hmm. I guess, um, slash podcaster slash uh, content Creator, sometimes people call me a comedian and I don't correct them, even though I'm I'm definitely not a comedian. Um, Someone also called me a best-selling author once, even Mm. though I haven't written a book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, honey, I took it, baby. I'm not correcting that. Are you kidding me? Not only have I apparently written a book, but Jacob, it is a bestseller. <laughs> Number one. Hit. I mean, yeah. So, um, yeah, probably probably journalist is the one that fits kind of um, the closest to to what I do. But I also host a podcast called The Briefing. We're on the same. Mm-hmm. We're in the same listener Part family. Fam. You yep. and I. Mm-hmm. Part of the fam bam. You have gisters. We have briefers. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're not, if you don't know what the briefing is. 6 a.m. weekdays, baby. Mm-hmm. All your all the news that you need to know. Um, there's my shameless plug. I'll get it out of the way early. <laughs> hey, for fans of Just the Gist, if you're not into it and you want to get like a daily dose of news, it's the perfect solution for you because like the whole concept of the briefing is you're giving just the gist of the top stories of the day, right? And then you get into yeah, much. giving a more extended gist of uh, um, another topic that people are sort of discussing at dinner parties, no doubt. Yeah, it's. I think. I think it's a really. It's a perfect uh, like antidote to the morning. You wake up, you get twenty minutes news, the headlines, a ten minute deep dive into a topic, and then you're kind of set to go for the rest of the day. So um, that's the thing that I do with listener, and then a bunch of other sort of projects that I work on, and um, various TV shows that you might have spotted me on. But mm-hmm. you know, lady about town. Everyone seems to know Jan Fran. A lot of my friends were so excited that I was getting the chance to spend time with you today. And I got to say, I'm really grateful we were able to get a chunk of your time before you start your maternity leave properly. Like, as soon as we found out we were doing special guest hosts, I was like, get Jan Fran as quickly as we can because the girl's ready to pop and I don't want to miss her. Um, yeah, I am um, approximately 800 months pregnant. Yeah, so uh-huh. could happen any moment, could happen while we're recording this. Why not? No publicity is bad publicity, I say. That would make just the gist history. Gistery, um, how are you feeling? Are you ready? Um, I think I'm um, increasingly less not ready. <laughs> you know, like that's... <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know if that's a diplomatic no, but I but yeah, everyone always asks that question. I'm like, you know what? I don't think that you're ever ready, but I think you increasingly become less unready. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like a year ago, I would have been more not ready. Okay. Than I am now. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. how I would describe it. Yeah. A lot of my friends said something similar, but they sort of phrased it more as like, okay, I'm coming to terms with the fact that there's no backing out now. Like it's happening. Yeah. So I'm just going to have to be prepared for it. Yeah. There's this massive part of me that's like, I can't believe that something that my body is literally making as we speak mm-hmm. is going to be a person with like human rights and, <laughs> you know, a sentient mind that, and you have to like look after them by law for 18 years. Like that is insane. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that is like I can't believe that I could go to jail if I don't look after the thing that is literally a cell in my body. I'm like, but I made I made you. Like what? <laughs> I'll do what I like with you. Yeah. And now I have to contend with the fact that you're like a person. That's, it's just, it's all just been so unbelievably mind blowing. Yeah. It's going to be a pretty wild ride and it's just getting started. Yeah. Um, speaking of getting started, I suppose we should jump in, but before we do, I'll just explain. We were meant to be recording together in the same room, but, um, Sadly, we've had to do this remotely because I'm currently in isolation. Last Friday, Miss Corona finally caught up with me. Um, And so I've been doing my seven days ISO in my friend's pool house on the central coast of New South Wales, um, which has been a nice spot to be, I've got to say. No complaints from me. There is not actually a pool yet. The pool house has been built in advance of the pool that's yet to come. Um, This is such a classic case of the cart before the horse. Like yeah. that's what's happened here. Yeah. <laughs> and it's worked out in my favour because I've been able to just <laughs> move on in with all my COVID germs and hunker down here <laughs> for a few days of watching TV. Um, should we go ahead and get started? You ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. So ready. You know, this is, I think, the first ever alcohol-free episode of Just the Gist we've ever done with you being pregnant and me having COVID. Ordinarily, we've got a couple of beverages on the go. This is our first dry episode. It's totally involuntary as well. Like, oh, yeah. We both just yeah. can't drink at the moment. Not by preference, certainly just no. by circumstance. Alrighty, so on a very drizzly spring morning in 1965, a middle-aged couple in Cardiff, Wales, got a knock on their front door and the husband went to open the door to find there were half a dozen men with notepads and cameras standing on the porch. Clearly, they were reporters, and they asked if this was the house where Brian Robson lived, and the homeowner told them, well, yes and no. He was Brian's father, and this was where Brian had grown up, but Brian had moved to Australia, so if they wanted to talk to him, they were going to need to call him in Melbourne. And one of the reporters replied, well, see, that's why we're here, Mr. Robson. Brian's actually in hospital in America. Long story, he tried to post himself from Melbourne to London in a wooden crate. He wound up in Los Angeles, half dead. Maybe we should come in and tell you all about it. And Mr. Robson Sr. was sort of like, I suppose, yes, that would be a good idea. (laughs) So the reporters all filed inside to tell Brian Robson's parents everything they knew about the lengths their son had gone to just to try to get himself home from Australia. 
This is the gist of how a Welsh teenager human trafficked himself in this small wooden box and only just barely survived to tell the tale. So strap in. Okay. In 1964, Brian Robson was just a standard issue 18-year-old boy who really didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. At the time, he was working as a bus conductor and he was still living at home with his parents in Cardiff in Wales. But he was very keen to move out because he'd never got on with his dad and things were only deteriorating now that Brian was an adult. So he was always on the lookout for a new job with better pay so he'd be able to afford to move out. And one day when he was looking at job ads in the paper, One ad in particular caught his attention because the salary, quite juicy compared to what he was getting currently. But then the more information he read in the ad, the more intrigued he got because the job Mm -hmm. was with the railway in Victoria, Australia. And Brian literally giggled at the idea of anyone choosing to move to Australia because all he knew about the place is that it's where England used to send their convicts. And he was very surprised to learn that Australia even had trains. But the ad promised... Okay, I love when, like, British people, like, thumb their nose at Australia for Mm. starters. It's like, bitch, you're from England. Like, calm down. It's raining every day. (laughs) It's miserable. Nobody wants to go there. (laughs) It's not the apex of civilization that you seem to think it is. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, like, he'd grown up thinking where he lived in Cardiff was a total shithole anyway. So, like, you can... That says a lot about how little he really thought of Australia. But, you know, the ad promised all relocation costs would be covered by the government as well as all living expenses for the first two years and whoever got the job wouldn't even need to have a passport because they'd be given a one-time international travel pass. So it seemed like it was a pretty good deal and Brian was curious, so he wagged work one day and went along to the open cattle call style interview to find out more. And because he was healthy enough and because he had experience working on public transport already, he was offered the job on the spot. And he was like, just like that, you're willing to put me on a boat all the way to Australia and then just pay for all my living expenses for the next two years, really. And the recruiting officer was like, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to put you on a plane and we'll fly you out to Australia and then we'll look after your living expenses for the next two years. We just need you to wait a few months until you turn 19, so then it's legal, and then you, my friend, are off to Melbourne. Now, Brian still wasn't sure whether or not he was going to actually accept the offer, but when he got home and told his parents about it, his dad was like, absolutely not, we won't allow it, which of course made Brian's mind up then and there that he absolutely was going to Australia purely to spite his dad. And so a few months later, 19-year-old Brian was on his first ever flight taking him to a country he'd spent precisely zero minutes researching before he left. And back then, it was a 48-hour journey from London 
to Melbourne with like a dozen stopovers on the way. So he had heaps of time to make friends with the two blokes he was traveling with who were also being sent to work on the railways in Victoria. Brian doesn't remember their names, so we'll just call them William and Harry for the purpose of this story. Now, after days of bunny hopping across Europe and Asia, they landed in Darwin, where all new arrivals had to be processed through customs and immigration. And this was where Brian and his friends realised they were not in Kansas anymore. They could barely understand the immigration officer's accent. They'd never heard an Australian accent before, let alone a Northern Territorian's accent. And they were very distracted by the fact that this man's uniform was shorts. Brian had never seen a grown man's hairy legs poking out of shorts in real life before. And he just couldn't fathom that this is what passed as a uniform in this country. I mean, obviously we can't relate, but the amount of people who have, like I've got a mate who's American mm. who is just, who is now living on the Sunshine Coast. Like he's moved from New York to the sunny coast. Like, <laughs> thank you, COVID. I know. I know. He's just gotten the culture shock of his life. But the one thing that he is so incensed about, Jacob, is the fact that he has to wear shorts and he cannot wear pants (laughs) because he's just so hot all the time. Like he's actually offended at the degree to which shorts exist. But, yes. So go on. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm feeling this guy. I'm feeling foreigners who come here and they're like, this is completely unacceptable. What have I signed up for? What is this bizarre place on the other side of the planet? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, he instantly started to feel uncomfortable and began to kind of question his choice. But... While he was there, his travel pass was taken away and in return he was given a bunch of vaccination shots and then sent on to Melbourne via Sydney. And when Brian and William and Harry got to their final destination in Melbourne, an official from the Victorian Railways collected them at the airport, drove them to their new home and dropped them off and made sure they knew where to report for their first training shift the next day and let them just go ahead and settle in. Now, Brian and his friends were absolutely repulsed when they saw their rooms, and it's not like they were expecting they'd each get a luxury penthouse to themselves, but they weren't imagining they'd be sharing these twin rooms that looked like putrid prison cells. They assumed at the very least they'd be given somewhere hygienic to sleep, but... They were mistaken. I can relate to what it's like to show up to a hostel that's absolutely disgusting. Apparently this one, there were piles of rat poo in just about every corner and the walls were grey with old ash and mould and the mattress and the sheets were really foul and stained and the bathroom was just a petri dish. And these were teenage boys who were disgusted by it as well, you've got to keep in mind. So it must have been pretty bad. That does say something. Yeah. Yeah. The level that makes a teenage boy disgusted has to be, like, pretty base Mm -hmm. level stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. not good. And the boys were properly stunned and really didn't know what to do. So they just went downstairs to the hostel's canteen where their dinner was waiting for them and they were given these three bowls of inedible greasy sludge that they didn't dare sniff, let alone taste. And they just sort of stared at each other in silence and Brian was the first one to be like, boys... I think we've made a huge mistake here. 
and we should not have bought tickets to this fire festival. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they did their best to sleep that night. The next morning they went off to their first training shift where they were absolutely unable to pay attention while their teacher was trying to walk them through their duties when it came to whistles and flags and ticket collecting because they were really just waiting until they had the opportunity to make a complaint about their lodging so someone could hopefully arrange for them all to be moved. And they all agreed if better accommodation wasn't sorted out, all three of them were going to demand to be sent back to the UK. And the guy they complained to... He'd heard it all before. So he explained to the boys they'd clearly agreed to something without taking the time to read the fine print because when it came to their living expenses being covered, yes, they were covered by being deducted from their wages. So in reality, they were already paying for their own accommodation and if they wanted to go and find somewhere nicer to stay, they were absolutely welcome to, but they were definitely going to be paying a lot more than what the hostel cost. And sure, if they wanted to go back to the UK, they were free to go anytime they liked, but it meant that if they left before they'd done their two years of service for Victorian Railways, they would have to pay back the cost of their airfare out to Australia, they'd have to buy themselves a new ticket home, and they'd have to pay to get their own passport because none of them already had their own. They'd just used their travel pass. And on their railway worker wages, it would be completely impossible to pull together that much cash, even if they did stay in the dirt cheap filth hostel. So they were stuck. And this was... Okay, what the hell kind of like worker exploitation scheme were we running in the 1960s? Pretty shifty. What? You take away people's passports and you tell them they have to pay for their flights back? Like, that is... Mm-hmm. Okay, Australia. Yeah, there's a little flavour of slave labour in there. Very, very yeah. shifty operation. And now I'm getting a sense of why someone might <laughs> not so much want to mail themselves back to England but might not want to pay the full fare to get from Australia to England and might be looking for crafty ways to mm-hmm. avoid doing that. Yeah. Okay. Like there was just no way he was ever going to be able to pull together the money he'd require to be able to get back. And, of course, no way he was going to ask his parents to pay. He was way too proud right. for that. And he's done this despite despite his parents anyway. His parents were probably like, don't go, don't mm-hmm. do this thing. And he's like, I'm doing it. I'm going, he goes, there's too much pride, etc. Brian's in a pickle. That's exactly it. That's yep. what it sounds he like to me. admit mm-hmm. that he was wrong. So day one in the country, Brian decided that he hated Australia and he was going to get off this stupid island as soon as he possibly could. In the meantime, though, at least he had his pals William and Harry to keep him company, but pretty soon they got themselves better-paying jobs in a factory and moved off to Dandenong. Brian wasn't so lucky, couldn't find anyone willing to hire him, so he was left behind working for the railway. And I say working, but in reality, he and his colleagues just spent all their shifts wreaking havoc and playing pranks on each other and on passengers and on their supervisors. Like, they'd make false announcements over the loudspeaker to cause passengers to panic about being on the wrong platform or being on the wrong train. (laughs) 
Um, they'd flag trains down that didn't need to stop just so it'd mess up the entire system across the whole city. Sometimes they'd all just go and hide for 30 minutes and then just come back and see what chaos had happened while they were gone. So it sounds to me like they really should have been having a blast. Like that's the sort of shit that 19-year-old boys love. Yeah. But Brian was determined to be miserable no matter what he'd even managed to move into a nicer apartment which just quietly he was able to afford because he was pocketing passengers ticket fare most days while he was on shift um even still in that nicer apartment he was just committed to having the grumps and he spent all his nights sulking alone really really hated the fact that in melbourne All the pubs still had to close at 6pm in those days. And even though he didn't drink, he decided that no pubs meant no possible way to meet people and have fun. So he would just go home alone every night and sulk. Now, one of his shifts being a menace at the train station, Brian was lazily chucking bags of mail into a train carriage and According to him, he didn't notice until after that train was gone that a small package had fallen out of one of the sacks and onto the platform. And he found it, put it in his pocket to figure out what he was going to do with it later, and then, oops, weeks passed by before he found what was in his pocket and figured that enough time had passed that that must mean that whatever it was was now rightfully his. Wouldn't you know it, in that envelope was someone's brand new checkbook. And as far as Brian was concerned, it was now Brian's Which, of course, fell off the back of a train. Yeah, completely innocent accident. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what a whoopsie. Mm -mm. Okay, yeah. So now Brian has an empty checkbook. Okay. Uh And he promised himself he would never, ever use the checks, though. That would just be terribly brazen and illegal. Brian doesn't sound like somebody who would do anything stupid so yep (laughs) never 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 but he just liked to carry the checkbook around with him he just liked the feeling of it in his pocket now the days kept ticking by as brian got more homesick and he felt really really sorry for himself that he didn't have anyone to cook for him and he had to eat cheese and toast for dinner every night and he spent all his free time daydreaming about going home to a place that he'd never even liked until he wasn't there anymore so pretty miserable and then one day a and so how long has he been in australia for at this point only the matter doing of a, doing his railroad thing couple of months really hasn't been okay. that long at all um but thankfully a circuit breaker came along um to help sort of pull him out of this routine one of brian's mates at the railway station an aussie boy from newcastle in new south wales called bob begged Brian to let him stay at his place for a while. And Brian very reluctantly let Bob sleep on his couch for a few weeks. They became good mates. And one night, Brian and Bob stayed up watching TV until well after three in the morning. So, of course, they overslept the next day and showed up to work hours late for their shifts, which wasn't uncommon for any of them at that station. And whenever anyone arrived late, they'd just act like they'd been there the whole time and most of the time no one would even notice that they'd been late but on that particular day the manager did notice Bob and Brian's absence so Brian got a formal warning but Bob got fired because he was already on his final warning 
Brian felt this was completely unfair, so he decided to quit in solidarity with Bob and the two boys slunk home together to figure out what they were going to do now. And while they were looking at job ads in the paper, Brian turned to Bob and asked him if he'd ever thought about moving to the UK. And Bob said he'd love to, but he couldn't afford a passport or a ticket and he knew he was going to need both of those things. And Brian told Bob he really shouldn't let that sort of bureaucratic thinking get in his way. What if you didn't need either of those things? We're both two smart guys, right? If we put our heads together, surely we'll be able to come up with a plan to get to London without tickets and without passports. Yeah, but why let the law... Right, get in your way. Mm -hmm. Like, such small thinking. It's just such small thinking, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. Get a little creative. Let's do some brainstorming. Um, and they ended up deciding they were going to become stowaways on a ship. And Brian was certain that because the first place he'd arrived in Australia was Darwin, that must mean Darwin had to be the country's major international port where all the big ships would come and go from. So if they could just... Oh, honey, did mm. he know Australia is an island that is completely surrounded by... It is literally a one big port. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what this country is. But, yeah, okay. <laughs> he was, once again, using the information available to him without doing any further research. So he thought if we just get to Darwin, we'll be able to sneak onto any number of ships and then a few weeks later we'll dock in London and set up new lives. It's obviously clear to you, Jan, that neither of these men were going to be invited to join Mensa at any point in their lives. Yeah, something, something. I just, there's, I've just had a few hunches along the way of you telling me this story that, yeah, there, there are a couple of kangaroos short of the top hat. But, <laughs> you know, they didn't have Google. It's not like you could just, it's 1965, you got to remember, you yeah. know, like mm. you're not going to go to a, a library and borrow a book about the history of Australian ports. You're just going to go, well, I landed in Darwin. I probably am going to leave from Darwin. That kind of makes sense. So, yeah, you can see you the know, logic. It's some not leeway. flawless, but it's there, I guess. Yeah. Um, now, Brian told Bob about the checkbook that he'd found and said he figured they could use the checkbook to buy a first-class train ticket for each of them to get to Sydney. And then from there, they looked at a map and worked out their next stop should be Toowoomba. And then they figured they could just hitchhike the rest of the way to Darwin. So that was it. They were ready to go. They packed up and a few days later... They were on their way from Toowoomba to Darwin. Neither of them had any real concept of how far that is, especially by (laughs) foot. One day. Some of the best stories are just about Europeans fundamentally misunderstanding Australia. Mm -hmm. Like scandos, getting their gear off and getting on the beach when it's like 14 degrees and then just copying a sunburn from hell because they just don't understand (laughs) what our ozone layer is and then getting bitten by all of the creatures in the sea that are trying to eat you Mm -hmm. because they think it's the Mediterranean and you're like, "Mm, no. Yeah, uh, treating the crocodile warning signs as like a suggestion as opposed to an (laughs) instruction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. 
Now, one day they were very, very grateful to be picked up by the manager of a sheep station who invited them to come round for dinner and stay the night. And over dinner, after a nice warm bath, the boys told the station manager they were headed to Darwin so they could get a ship to London to start their new lives. And the station manager could see these were just two lost little boys who were living in a fantasy land and he generously tried to offer them a pathway back to reality by offering them jobs there on the sheep station. Brian said thanks, but no thanks. He was absolutely going home. But Bob accepted the offer, much to Brian's shock and horror. Bob tried to convince Brian to just stay on the station with him for a while, see if he liked it, but Brian just felt betrayed and said he was leaving the next day for Darwin alone. And that's when the station manager broke the news to him that if Brian wanted to get a ship to London, he was going to need to turn around and go back to Sydney or Melbourne because those, in fact, are the major ports where you can get yourself on a ship heading to Europe. So Brian felt a bit foolish but tried his best not to show it and he said goodbye to Bob and then retraced his footsteps down the dirt path all the way back to Sydney where it turned out he had a great aunt living and he showed up on her doorstep uninvited, unannounced and introduced himself. He was confident that he was just charming enough to be invited to stay and sure enough he was he got pretty comfortable staying with this aunt who was pretty well off her her place was like super luxe compared to everywhere else he'd been over the last few months and he got himself a job to earn some pocket money but at the same time was still thinking he was going to stow away on a boat once he was ready And one day, out of boredom, Brian called up Bob at the sheep station to check how he was going. Bob was miserable. Turned out he hated sheep, hated everything about them, hated the shearers, hated the shepherds, hated the lambs, and he just couldn't handle the flies in the outback anymore. And so Brian (laughs) offered him a lifeline and invited him to come and stay at his aunt's place with him. So Brian and Bob were reunited after only a couple of weeks apart. And straight away, they got back to planning their escape to London. And that plan... Okay, but at this point, it seems like Brian is doing kind of okay in Australia, right? Like he's got a job, he's got a great aunt, he's living in Sydney, Mm -hmm. he's like 19 or 20 or however old he is still insisting that he's got to get back to London as a stowaway. Like, couldn't he just save money at this point and just get a ticket, son? Get a ticket, son, and and get out of here, you know? Be content with what you've got. Wait a little while and you'll be able to get there by legal means. No, he had this stubborn desire to get back there because he felt this sense of superiority to the entire nation of Australia and wanted to evacuate No matter what, nothing was going to stand in his way. So the boys were back together and they're planning their trip to London. That plan got a bit of an unexpected jolt of momentum when they met one of Brian's aunt's friends, this kind of shady character who went by Jack. And 
Over dinner, Jack explained that he was leaving for England in a few days on a cruise liner and he had a couple of visitors' passes that allowed him to bring some friends on board so they could take a little tour of the vessel before it left port. And he was willing to give the boys the passes so they could come on board, see the ship and then just hide out somewhere. And then when the time was right, they could head to Jack's cabin and just spend the entire six-week voyage hiding out in his cabin. Now, why he was offering this to these strange young men he'd never met before, what he could possibly have been expecting in return, I guess we'll just never know. Um, you can choose your own adventure on that one. He was just a nice guy who just, you know, was out of the kindness and goodness of his heart, offered these two young men a mm-hmm. place in his cabin for six weeks where they couldn't leave and couldn't tell anyone they were there and that all seems very kosher and fine. Perfectly, perfectly innocent. He was just a good Christian spirit who (laughs) wanted to (laughs) help out some people in need. I'm sure that's the explanation, yes. Um, Brian didn't question what was going on. He was just so thrilled, couldn't believe his luck. This was going to be even easier than he could have imagined. Bob, however, was a little apprehensive, but he agreed to go along with the plan right up until the moment came to board the ship when he got cold feet and backed out. So he said goodbye to Brian for the second time as Brian boarded with his visitor's pass in hand. And then after about an hour or so, Waltzing Matilda started blasting out of all the speakers on all the decks and that was the signal to notify the visitors to all please get the fuck off the boat now. But Brian stood brazenly on the deck waving at the crowd on Circular Quay as the ship pulled out to sea, then went to wait for Jack on deck so that Jack could take him back to Jack's cabin. When he came along, though, Jack had some bad news. He didn't realise he'd booked himself a ticket in an eight-person cabin, which was completely full. Can you imagine anything worse in the world than being in a cabin full of you and seven strangers for six or... On a boat. I I actually, I hate boats. Mm -hmm. I hate all boats. I hate small boats. I hate big boats. I hate boats that existed in 1965 to take you from (laughs) Melbourne to London over a period Mm. of six weeks. I definitely hated them. And so, like, that's, but you know what? That's, that's just, that's bad form on Jack's part. Like, look at the ticket, babe. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, the information is probably there. Hey, you've Mm -hmm. gone and planned this thing. You haven't really done your research. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Critical detail that you missed, buddy. You had clearly not been paying enough attention. Yep. Um, now, you think you hate boats? Brian turned out to really, really, really hate boats. He didn't have much experience on the seas at all. So even though he was furious at Jack, much worse was the seasickness that he was experiencing. So even though he was the trying The boat hasn't think, even left the dock right, yet, though. Like barely made it out of Sydney (laughs) Harbour and he already was just completely green, sitting huddled on deck trying to think about where he might be able to hide for the next six weeks now that he knew he wasn't going to be able to hide in Jack's cabin and just trying to hold himself together, which he wasn't able to do for very long. He started hurling all over the deck. A crew member literally had to carry him to the sick bay to see a doctor who gave him a bunch of seasickness 
medicine and asked him his name and his cabin number. And Brian was just too unwell to have the forethought to think he should give Jack's details. He just blurted out his own name. And when they couldn't find a Brian Robson on the passenger manifest, the captain was called to decide what they were going to do with their little stowaway. The captain's decision was they were going to dump Brian at their next stop, which was Wellington, New Zealand. Oh, In- my God. Mm-hmm. I'm just like I'm seeing this guy making a lot of bad decisions and I just I really just want to intervene and just be like, don't do that. That's a bad decision. Mm-hmm. I know a way that you can get to London that's, you know, you're just going to have to work a little bit harder, save a bit of money and get out of here. Mm-hmm. You'll be right. You'll be right, son. Let me tell you now, he's only just starting to pick up momentum when it comes to the bad choices he's oh, making on this man. journey. Yeah. So sure enough, Brian was booted off the boat in Welly with no money, knowing absolutely nobody in the country and having nowhere to go. I mean, it go. would be a sick plan if your overall goal was to get to New Zealand for free. Totally. Like, yeah. that would work, mm-hmm. you know? Okay. But it was the absolute opposite direction from where he wanted to be headed. So with no plan to get home, he just sort of spent the next few days riding around the trains in Wellington, enjoying the scenery and sleeping at the train stations because at least train stations was something he was kind of familiar with from back in Melbourne. And then eventually he thought, okay, why don't I be sensible here and go and ask a homeless shelter if they might be able to help me out and the homeless shelter gave him a place to sleep for a few nights and also called his aunt to tell her what had happened and god love her she sent over the money to buy brian a plane ticket to get him back to sydney so within a few days he was back in his home and just blaming the whole debacle on jack it was all jack's fault and then brian just went back to work the next day like nothing had happened all his co-workers just assumed he'd been off sick for a few days. The next few weeks pass. <laughs> but he's like, oh, actually, no, I just stowed myself in a ship thinking I was <laughs> going to get to London and I found myself in Wellington where I slept at a railway station for a few days and then got my aunt to pay the ticket back. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah. Why were you off work, for Brian? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Funny story. (laughs) Mm, Just wanted a little getaway, you know. So back to normal in Sydney, a few weeks passed, Brian and Bob still living at Arnie Mavis's house. And like you said, they, they were in a pretty good situation. They could have stayed there longer. And they probably actually would have, but then Bob found out that there were some detectives that had come to see him at work one day while he was out because they had some questions for him about some fraudulent checks that he'd been writing. Mm, Because in particular, while the boys had been up in Queensland, they'd started using the stolen checks to buy some toys for themselves. Yes. And so bit by bit, the retailers started reporting the fraud to the cops. They'd put a few things together and managed to track Bob and Brian down to Sydney. So, of course, they panicked, they packed their stuff, and then they disappeared from Arnie Mavis's house as quickly as they could without saying goodbye, without saying thank you. And they headed off for, why not, let's go back to Darwin once again. 
Don't ask me why. Even Brian wasn't able to give a good reason for why Darwin made sense, but that's what they decided their destination was going to be. So they went north by train again to Queensland, which was the scene of the crime. That's where they'd passed the majority of the fraudulent checks, and it was the Queensland police force that were trying to hunt them down. But back to Queensland they went, and once they were up there, they decided they were going to visit some of Bob's family in this cute little rural town for a few days, and they were having a lovely time with Bob's relatives until Bob's dad showed up and Bob's dad knew all about the checks. The Rellos had called him to dob Bob in the second he'd arrived on their doorstep. Bob's dad drove all the way from Newcastle so that he could scream and shout at Bob and then drag him out to the car. Brian, of course, tagged along, not knowing what else to do. And then the dad drove them all, all the way back to Newcastle, all through the night. Oh, my God. Ditched Brian in the middle of nowhere on the side of the road along the way. That's it. Just do that. Just do yeah. that, Bob's dad. Like, I just <laughs> no I feel good. like we've got to a point. There's no good. Like, mm-hmm. he's a ne'er-do-well. What is my son Bob doing hanging out with this guy? Mm-hmm. He's been to Darwin. He tried to stash himself on a boat. He's living with an old duck in Sydney. What the fuck is going on? I don't know where the fuck we are, but mm-hmm. you're getting off here, my friend. Yeah, we're shutting this yeah. down now. It's gone on long enough. Yep. Yeah. But Brian found his own way to Newcastle in the next couple of days, tried really hard to track Bob down over the next few weeks but had no luck. While he was trying... The Queensland police force were able to track him down and arrest him and drag him up to Brisbane where he was tried for passing those fraudulent checks and sentenced to two months in prison, which he served with only one attempt at escaping along the way, which obviously didn't go well because this is Brian we're talking about. When he was released, he fully expected he was going to be deported and he was really looking forward to that. The guards had threatened to have him deported and when they saw how happy that idea made him, they decided to keep telling him that's what they were planning to do just so that he'd be extra crushed when he was released and found out that threat was a lie. So freed, but devastatingly disappointed. Actually, that's also a good idea. Like, that's also a good way of getting yourself back to England kind of at, uh, you know, cost-free. It's like do a crime, Mm -hmm. get in the jail for two months, and then get deported. Obviously, don't show how excited you are about being deported. Like, be Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. You know, that's where that's where he went wrong. If if he was like, "Oh no, I'm mm. being deported." I that's so I really wish I wasn't. If yep. he just pulled that for like a few weeks. Yeah. Poker <sighs> face let him down. Shame. So close, Brian. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so he was free and he made the kind of surprising choice to go back to the place where all his misery began. He didn't go back to his aunt's place in Sydney, probably guessed that he wasn't going to get a third chance out of her. And he didn't well, go back to Newcastle. Well, he left without saying thank you or goodbye. So, I mean, come on. Yeah, she probably didn't have warm, fuzzy feelings for him, especially no. after the whole Wellington incident. Yeah. Um, uh, didn't bother going back to Newcastle. Apparently he'd just given up on Bob. Instead, he went back to Melbourne 
and got himself an apartment in St Kilda and a job at a paper mill and just returned to his favourite routine of sulking and complaining about how much he hated Australia. And Misery loves company, so he found a couple of Irish blokes called John and Paul who'd fallen for the same scheme that had brought Brian to Australia in the first place. They were working for the railway, they were living in that rat-infested hostel, and Brian swooped in and made friends with them. And one day they all visited the British exhibition at the Melbourne showgrounds where Brian spotted an ad for a moving company. The slogan on their sign said, we ship anything anywhere. And Brian pointed at the ad and joked to his friends, maybe they could ship us home. And John and Paul sort of gave a polite courtesy chuckle and kept walking, but Brian started seriously pondering how he might actually be able to send himself home to the UK as freight, potentially for free. And there was... Yes, because that's the first thing that comes to mind when you see an ad saying, we can ship anything anywhere. It's like, honey, I think they're talking about your furniture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, like... (laughs) Like if you've got any upholstery that you need to send somewhere or if, you know, that's that's the extent of it. But, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, he's a, real, he's a real thinking outside the square kind of guy. And the bizarre thing is there was precedence for this. One year earlier in 1964 there was quite famously an Australian man named Reg, of course, who'd shipped himself all the way from London to Perth in a crate successfully and used cash on delivery as the payment method. The business it was being delivered to didn't exist. So in the end, no one had to pay. And that became quite well publicized. And it served as further inspiration for Brian that maybe there was the possibility he could find a way to make this work. And so the day after they'd visited the expo, he went to the Qantas booking office to get all the information he needed about shipping freight to London, all the prices and, you know, size and weight restriction, customs info, all of that, went away and came up with what he truly thought was a genius plan to mail himself home. And when he was ready, he proudly explained it all to John and Paul, who, of course, just assumed it was just a gag and offered to donate some stamps to the cause if that's what he wanted. But he convinced them he was serious after a couple of hours and John was absolutely horrified, refused to get involved, whereas Paul, he was the type of shit-stirrer friend who just always wants to see what's going to happen and told Mm -hmm. Brian he should totally go for it. Those friends typically are Scorpios. And with (laughs) Paul's encouragement, Brian spent the next few days hunting for the perfect crate Goldilocks style. He needed something that was sturdy but not too heavy, something with the right dimensions to be able to fit him and his suitcase. And after a few days of looking, he found one that was 96 centimetres long, 76 centimetres tall and 66 centimetres deep. So we're talking about something that is quite small. I mean, that is quite small. Why would you choose that size crate when you could choose is it, well, he's trying to skint on the cash, surely. Is that That's what's right. going on? He just, yep. Oh, my God. Ryan, mm-hmm. Ryan. Plus each individual unit couldn't be too heavy and this was going to fit within the restrictions. 
He'd packed everything he thought he'd need for a nice comfortable flight, a pillow and a bottle of water and a book of Beatles song lyrics to read for entertainment, as well as an empty bottle to pee in. He thought he'd thought of everything. He really believed. That's not going to save you, my dude. (laughs) The Beatles lyrics, not going to save you in this instance, Uh -uh. but go well. I like the, you know, he's thinking outside the box, no pun intended. Yeah, that was one of the essentials he needed to take with him in this foolproof (laughs) plan of his. He genuinely just couldn't foresee any major crap-ups, but then after only three hours in the crate, he was already pretty sure that's where he was going to die. He made some very minor modifications to the crate once he got it home. He attached a bit of rope to two points inside it that was going to act as his kind of seat belt to sort of hold him in place. And he installed a little hook in the ceiling of the box that was going to hold a little hand torch that he'd need along the way. And then he got inside to make sure that he could fit in there with his suitcase, his pillow, his water bottle, pee bottle, and of course, his book of Beatles lyrics, as well as a little hammer he was taking that he was planning to use to open the crate to get himself out of it once he got to London. And so he was like, when he fit into the box, he was sort of like contorted, right? Like he was in a... uh, It's not like he was lying down on some pillows just like hanging out. He was sort of in a weird position trying to get himself in there with the suitcases. Knees up in his chest, so kind of like a fetal position and most of the time he was going to spend with his arms wrapped around his knees. So he could sit upright but he would not be able to extend his legs or even extend his arm completely. And he genuinely thought that he was going to do this for what he believed was 48 hours. Mm -hmm. That's right. Now, three days before he left, Brian was taking laxatives and he was fasting from that point onwards so that he wouldn't have to poop on the journey. So he was probably already a little bit giddy and lightheaded when he said his farewells to John and Paul. As they'd promised him, they nailed the crate shut once he was inside and then they moved the crate out to the front yard. And when the couriers got there, John and Paul asked them to please be extra mindful of the This Way Up and the Fragile stickers because there were very delicate and expensive computer tubes and special beep boops inside the crate, so please handle with care. The couriers promised they would and then Brian was on the truck and heading off. His journey had finally begun And within 10 minutes, he was already very, very uncomfortable. And it then took a few hours before he was even on the first leg of the trip to get from Melbourne to Sydney. So by the time he was in Sydney, he was already in agony. But I mean, did he try, was he like knocking at any point on the crate or did he try and did he have this moment where he's like I've made a huge mistake and then like started yelling for help Mm -mm. there seems like there was a bunch of opportunities to do that no he's such a stubborn little so-and-so he refused to give up especially at this point because he hadn't even left the country yet so there was no way he was going to give up and abort the plan because he was certain it was going to work now when he was in Sydney the crate was moved off the first plane 
just after it landed and it should have gone straight onto the second plane, but something had apparently gone wrong. Plans had been changed because Brian's crate was put aside in a storage unit for, according to Brian, 22 hours waiting to be put on the next flight. And that is bad enough in itself, but it's a hundred thousand times worse when you know that the crate had been stacked upside down the <gasps> entire time, which meant all of Bo- Brian's body weight was sort of crushing down oh on his my neck God. and his head. Yeah. How did he survive? How did mm-hmm. he survive this whole thing? And also, what a lesson that when you write this way up on mm-hmm. a crate, the baggage handlers do not listen. That's like, right. It's, you're definitely going to be ignored. Fragile, doesn't matter. This way up, doesn't matter. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Okay. And so for that reason, while he was there in the crate upside oh down God. in absolute agony going in and out of consciousness, he was cursing these idiot Australians working in the ground crew for ignoring the This Way Up stickers. He was blaming them for his untimely death. It was all their fault, of course, right. that he was The guy die. who had conceived this grand plan to nail himself into a crate and mail himself to England mm-hmm. is cursing the baggage handlers for their poor decision-making. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. You've got it. Um, at last the crate was turned the right way up. And it was loaded onto the next flight of the journey, which took off. And that gave him renewed hope that he was going to make it. He wasn't going to die after all. He was delirious, as you can imagine, by the time they were in the air. But he wasn't so out of it that he was willing to just wet himself. When he reached the point where he couldn't hold his bladder any longer, he tried to make use of that empty pee bottle he'd thought to bring along. But he wasn't able to get himself in the right position to be able to use the bottle. He hadn't done a test run of that before he got I mean, home. Mate, if you smell like urine at the end of this journey, like that is going to be the least of your worries. Right. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. at this point, just let it out. Mm-mm. Like you've been hanging upside down for 22 hours in a crate. Am I to understand that you're now concerned about a little bit of wee ending up on your pants? Like, you mm-hmm. you know, that's small fry. Apparently he was really precious about it because he managed to angle himself to the point where he was able to pee between two slats in the side of the crate where there was a little bit of a gap and about 70% of the pee made its way out of the crate, formed a little puddle around it. When the plane made its next stop, the ground crew came in to load and unload some of the luggage. Brian couldn't understand the language they were speaking, but he could tell they were very baffled by this strange puddle surrounding his crate. Yeah. Did they, (laughs) did anyone, was anyone like, oh, I think that this is pee. Some, there's... some kind of creature that urinates in here. All he heard was them mopping it up and it seemed no one cared to investigate where the pee came from. I guess that was just outside their pay grade. They weren't going to be looking into it. So the plane just took off again and Brian guessed he'd probably been in the crate for somewhere around 36 hours now and was thinking that must mean he'd be home fairly soon. But really, he'd lost track of time. He could barely breathe when the plane was up at its highest altitude. He was starving, dehydrated, hallucinating, and he was woken up 
as the plane was landing for what could have been the third or the seventh or the twelfth time. He just had no idea. He was in so much pain. He was just praying this was his final stop that he'd finally made it to London. The crate was unloaded and Brian was sure he could hear people outside speaking English. So his adrenaline started pumping because he assumed that this meant he was in the UK and this was go time. His plan was get out of the crate when it was late at night because there wouldn't be so many people around the place and he'd just casually walk into the terminal with his luggage and walk out the main exit like any other passenger. Surely no one would stop him and ask him questions along the way. Yeah, surely no one's going to stop the guy that is getting out of a crate (laughs) in the middle of an airport. No, there's no, no one's going to ask any question. Like, can you imagine just spotting that? Like just being one of the baggage handlers and like looking, just looking to your right and going, oh, mm. uh, all right, well, I'm not going to ask any questions. Why would I? You know, like, <laughs> He's just pulled a bridge. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, exactly. This has happened before. There's precedent. We're good. Guess this On is your just way, the son. new normal. It's going to be happening all the time. Um, yeah, so... He wanted to check his watch to see what time it was because the later the better when he emerged from the crate. He was so stiff and sore, it literally took him minutes just to move his arm a few centimetres upwards to grab the torch he'd attached to the ceiling to give him some light so he could look at his watch. He got the torch, he turned it on, but then he dropped it by accident. And again, it took him minutes of that slow motion agonizing movement, millimeter by millimeter, to try to reach down and grab it. And while he was reaching for it, a couple of ground crew spotted this strange light shining out of the slats in the crate and came over to check it out. And they looked at the crate's contents on the delivery slip and it said computers. And so they thought, well, maybe something inside the box had turned itself on by accident and they were quite worried about a potential fire hazard. So one of the guys put his eye up to a little gap between the slats to see if he could make out what was happening inside. And once his eyesight adjusted and he registered what he was looking at inside the box, he jumped back and ran screaming, there's a dead body in there. Oh, my God, there's a dead body inside that box. Bryant was trying to say something, but his vocal cords were just so completely mummified, no sound was coming out. The other dude from the ground crew was like, there's no way, there's a body in there, and went over to the gap to have a look for himself. And sure enough, he was looking at a person, but that person's eyes were moving. So he started screaming, it's alive. And so, of course, a crowd formed pretty quickly of ground staff standing around the crate debating, what do we do? Do we break international law by opening mail that's in transit or do we just ship it on to London and let them deal with the problem? So where are they at this point? I mean, if they're speaking English, like where in the world, where is Brian? He is in Los Angeles. Certainly not his plan, but there he is at LAX. And the supervisor stepped in, demanded someone open the box while someone else go and please call the FBI and get them down there as quickly as possible. I love how that was a deliberation, though. Like there is a... (laughs) 
a body, possibly dead or alive, in this mm-hmm. box. But, I mean, do we want to break, like, international transit law that says we can't open a package that doesn't belong to us? Yeah. You know, it's like, I think there are sometimes exceptions. <laughs> yeah. And thankfully the supervisor was aware that they'd probably get away with it if they did break those laws. So they cracked the crate open and they invited Brian to exit his little cocoon filled with pee, but he couldn't move. So they had to lift him out and they tried to lay him on the ground, but his limbs were just frozen where they'd been for five days. So he essentially was a statue. They called an ambulance because clearly this boy needed some serious medical attention. And Brian was completely baffled once he figured out he was in LA. He never would have expected that that's where he'd show up, but he couldn't ask anyone to explain yet because his voice wasn't working. So he just let them carry him off to hospital where they nursed him back to health over the next few days. And then once he was ready, everyone could start asking their burning questions and getting some answers. So it turned out the Qantas flight Brian had booked was too full. So his crate had been bumped onto a Pan American flight that was going to take the longer route to get to London going by LA. And if he hadn't been found when he was, he would have been sent on another 12 hours of transit and all the doctors agreed he wouldn't have survived another two hours in that crate without getting help. So thank goodness he dropped the torch when he did because there was no way he was going to be able to get out of that crate using that hammer he'd brought at any stage. Because that was it, that moment that he accidentally dropped Mm -hmm. the torch. That was not in the plan to do that. That's right. But he did that and that's what caught the eye of old mate. Yep. asking why is there lights going off in this crate? Mm-hmm. Yep. And the FBI spent a bit of time interrogating Brian just to make sure he wasn't a Russian spy or a terrorist and it really didn't take I mean, that long to be satisfied. This was just a stupid, arrogant kid who had a really fucking dumb idea. Even if it was a terrorist, you'd be like, you know what? I'm not really worried about this particular terrorist. <laughs> not a major threat. <laughs> not a major threat. This guy, you know, not a mastermind. Yeah. No need it's to like, worry. Yeah, he is a terrorist, but I'm just going to put him on, like, the low-risk list, you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't think there's anything that we need to be too worried about here. But yeah. yeah. Not a lot of teeth on this guy, no. <laughs> um, so then they had to decide whether to charge him for entering the country illegally or not, and they decided, look, it's just going to be way less hassle and bother if we let the boy go, which meant that then he was... Pan Americans' responsibility. They were the ones who were legally required to find a solution, which meant either shipping him on to his final destination or they could do a return to sender and ship him oh back my God. to Australia. <sighs> don't you? I just, I don't, I just don't want him back in the country. I don't want him back in the country. <laughs> I just don't. No, I want him out of this country. Please do not tell me that he gets shit back to Australia. Like, come on. Oh, there'd be a delicious irony if he did end up 
all the way back at square one, but no, Pan American decided to do the charitable thing, not because they had a whole lot of love for Brian, but because they knew this could be a really good publicity moment for them because, like, Brian's discovery in the crate had become a worldwide headline and so they knew that you know it'd make them look pretty good if they gave brian a first class ticket to london so that's right. what they went ahead and did because brian was now a bit of a celebrity and kind of a folk hero which i think you probably feel the same way i do that shits me to tears like the boy yeah. was a thundering imbecile and <laughs> he did not deserve to be rewarded in any way for this stupid stunt mm-hmm. he'd pulled but that was the situation people thought he was a pretty cool guy so every passenger but we've just continued this long tradition of dumb fucks getting rewarded for doing dumb shit for Haven't we? so many years like that's mm-hmm. just that's what happens you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Um, so, yeah, every single passenger on Brian's flight wanted to come up and introduce themselves, shake his hand, and there were photographers waiting for him when he got to London and then also at his parents' place when he made it home to Cardiff. And he actually really did hate the attention and he tried his best to lie low, but he had all these offers coming in for paid Shouldn't interviews. Shouldn't have mailed yourself in a crate from Melbourne to <laughs> yeah. London if you don't want attention, my dude. <laughs> don't pull outlandish stunts if you don't yeah. want people looking at you and asking you questions. Um, yeah, he made the decision in the end he was going to keep rolling with the public interest um, for as long as he could but of course that inevitably ran dry and he had to get on with his life then we flash forward to april of 2021 when brian released a book all about his adventure called the crate escape and the story and the book of course it was called the crate escape (laughs) that's good that's I actually good. appreciate that. Yeah, I love a good yeah, pun I'm, sometimes. Yeah, I can appreciate that. You're right. Yeah. Um, the story and the book got heaps of coverage thanks to the genius marketing strategy he went with. He told the media he was hoping he'd be able to track down John and Paul because he'd never been able to properly thank them for the help they'd generously given him. Those two boys had been smart enough never to come forward and admit their involvement because they knew they could have got in serious trouble, especially if things had ended even worse. If like if Brian had died, they would have been held responsible. And yeah, I mean John and Paul were like Ixnay on the mm-hmm. eight cray. <laughs> Let us never speak of this ever, ever again. Meanwhile he's like, I'd like to thank my friends John and Paul, specifically from Sydney. Sydney, Australia. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? They didn't even come forward. If they heard about the fact that Brian was trying to find them, they had no interest in seeing him again because in the end, Brian wasn't able to find either of them. But for a brief period of a few weeks, I mean, this search of Brian's was like the perfect human interest distraction in the news cycle that took people's minds away from the delta surge of the pandemic for a while. So Brian was doing interviews with just about every TV channel around the world. Um, We haven't had any updates since April, but I'm assuming that that uh, strategy helped him move a few units of his book. And that 
Dear Jan Fran and dear Jessners was just the gist of Brian Robson's idiotic journey home. I will wrap it up there. Cause that's, that is that's so where that it is ends, such my an insane story. Right. I just like there there were so many moments in that story where you're like, this is a bad idea. Mm. I mm. I don't think you should be doing that, Brian. I yeah. just it's possible, but it's a bad idea. Yeah. Lots of things can go wrong. But I feel like his survival is just the biggest fuck you to everyone. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? He's like, <laughs> he's like, well, I, I did it. I literally did the thing. And mm-hmm. I'm now presumably back in England and, you know, has written a book about it or whatever. Like that's yeah. just, oh, that's so insane. It's frustrating. He got exactly what he wanted in the end. Uh, yeah, he did. He totally did. Yeah. Oh, and there man, are, damn. look, there was so much affect, affection shown towards him during all those interviews when he was doing the press for his book. Um, you know, a lot of people just laughing at what a silly larrikin he was. I just found him incredibly, incredibly frustrating, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, there was this, like, really great story of, um, I can't remember whether it was a guy, a guy or a girl. I think maybe it was a guy. But he, like, didn't want to pay the extra charge required if your luggage is overweight. So mm. he, like, wore all of the extra clothes in his <laughs> luggage, which was, like, jumpers <laughs> and coats and jackets and skivvies because he's going somewhere cold. And mm. then, of course, he passed out on the plane because he was, like, overburdened with all of this <laughs> you know, just like <laughs> just overburdened in hot clothes. So it's like, oh. you know, people trying to like skint on airfares or airfare fees or anything to do with travel is <laughs> just, it's a tale as old as time, man. But God damn it, just pay the, the fare, get in a seat, Mm. eat your plain food or whatever it is and just get there in one piece. That would be my hot tip. <laughs> uh, something about air travel just um, messes with people's judgments sometimes. Um, so the final thing I'll say, like normally we let you know because we give just the gist if you want more details, there are places you can go to get further information. Obviously the crate escape and I would – I'd recommend all of you read it by all means. It's not too long. There's a couple of extra wrinkles and twists along the way in there that I wasn't able to fit into this episode. I also just kind of want everyone to see the book's not even spell checked. And so it is definitely (laughs) not fact checked. And um, it actually kind of looks like it's written as like a voice to text dictation. Um, So that is kind of fun to look at and then to sort of critically ask how many of these elements in these stories might be made up by a man who's now in his late 70s and has been telling Mm. this tale for a while. Um, And look, I did then start to get into fact check mode and started looking back at some of the archival articles from back when this happened and that just made it a whole lot less fun. So I'm just going to say... Read the book, don't bother about the fact-checking and just enjoy the ride along the way. The Crate Escape, you can get it on your Kindle. Let's just assume that most of what Brian says is probably going to be nonsense. He's a... I think... (laughs) 
you know. Yeah, he's a reliably point. unreliable guy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Jan, thank you so much for being a guest on Just the Gist. Do you have any final questions, comments, anything before we wrap it up? I mean, this was a tale of total fuckery mm-hmm. um, and I'm very glad to have been a part of it and I'm, I'm, you know what, kudos to that guy for surviving being a stowaway for five days. It was a terrible plan and he pulled it off. So good for him. A life-defining moment for him, truly. <laughs> yeah. All right, my dear, thank you so much once again um, and good luck with everything. Um, everyone should be following you on the Instagram, of course, just at Jan Fran, I believe, is your handle? Yeah, just punch in Jan Fran, I'll pop up. There's two underscores. It's all very convoluted. But I'm there. It's mainly just, you know, hot MILF content of just me in my underpants with my <laughs> massive prego belly. <laughs> And then eventually I guess you'll get back to regular programming, which includes some fantastic outfits that you share from your vintage store hauls. Um, So in the meantime, if you're not already following Jan, you can scroll back down through the archival stuff um, and then in the future we'll see some new stuff coming through. I'm very excited for you. I can't wait to hear when when the little bebe arrives. Oh, thanks, Dal. I'll make sure I... um... Uh, let folks know once, once, once they're all they're here in good time, and you know, as they say, just get here in one piece. <laughs> that's that's all. I, that's that's all I ask for. All right. Well, may the force be with you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Listener.